Politico's Burgess Everett joins the show to give fresh insight into the Senate gun deal. Plus, Mary Catherine Hamm talks about media and guns. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can pick up a membership today if you want exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and exclusive stories that you can't get anywhere else. Uh, You'll also get this podcast a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show. In fact, we have a member segment this week that I uh, am very excited about. We actually have uh, a famous member, Mary Catherine Hamm, will be joining us later in the show. But before we get to that, I want to focus on the Senate gun framework deal thing that they've got going on over there. And so we have another top Hill reporter with us this week. Uh, Burgess Everett from Politico is joining us to give us some insight. Uh, Burgess, can you just give us uh, a little background about yourself for those who might not know you? Sure. I'm the uh, Congressional Bureau Chief for Politico. I've been covering the Senate for more than nine years now, and I'm a kind of a Senate specialist. Uh, that's sort of my thing. I know most of the senators pretty well, and I've covered all of the people involved in these negotiations um, for many years now. So I actually know, know all four of them quite well. Yep. And that's why we that's why we wanted to have you on. We like to have experts and people with specific insight into the current events and uh, there really isn't anyone better than you. Uh, we had, uh, I mean, you know, obviously we had we had John from uh, Punchbowl last yep. week. So he's also fantastic. But uh, it's, and the former it, former bureau chief at Politico. So that's right. <laughs> we have a long lineage of of Hill reporters. So I wanted to get you know as, as much insider information, as much insight as possible. And you've been one of the top guys getting details on this this deal. You're there much more often than I am. So. Uh, that's why we want to have it on. Speaking of which, uh, we're filming this on on Thursday. Where yep. do things stand right now? Kind of like, a, uh, you know, it's being presented as, as a pivotal day, as yesterday was, which is Wednesday. Uh, but we're sort of at the point where folks are, are feeling some pressure to produce legislative text from this framework and, and have it ready to go by early next week. And in Congress, um, a lot of the times these big votes are wedged up against these recesses. The members really want to go home and you don't want to let things if they're controversial hang out over the recess. And so we have a two week recess coming up um, for the July 4th holiday. And there's just an immense feeling that you got to get this thing passed through the Senate before leaving town and going back home. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm hearing from my sources uh, on the Hill as well, that, uh, you know, they, they really have an aggressive timetable for this. They want, votes to happen before that recess. And that means they got to get text together. I mean, real fast, uh, whether it's, I think this week, this Friday, you know, tomorrow would be pretty ambitious from everything I've heard, but uh, maybe next Friday. Yeah. And, and, you know, keep in mind when there's a two week recess and one of the weeks is well before July 4th, you know, I think there's a little bit of wiggle room on the schedule once Mm -hmm. it gets on the floor. But you're not going to hear the the leaders talking about that until it's really, I mean, that's a threat you bring out at the last minute to say, all right, seriously, for real, like, we're doing this, you're going to stay here until we're done. And we're not quite there yet because they're not done. And uh, I'd say, like, the closest, you know, if you're looking for, like, an analog would be this infrastructure deal from last year where you have a framework and then the challenge is turning it into text. And that took much longer than what the gun negotiators are trying to do right now. It's about like half the timetable, you know, that the infrastructure deal took about six weeks to turn it into text. So that was pretty painful. And so it's interesting how much more quickly this one's moving. And I think it's because of the uh, sort of polarizing nature of guns compared to bridges. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think they, uh, the calculation is that if it, if it waits too long, there's going to be something that comes up to disrupt the whole thing, whether it's, uh, in the deal itself or outside of the deal. I mean, last time they had talks like this, it was uh, 2018, right? You had mm-hmm. President Trump at the time expressing interest in in passing some sort of gun bill with even with red flag laws and, mm-hmm. and so forth. And there were a lot of talks about that. It never got as far as this has gotten, but that was yeah. actually derailed by the first impeachment trial. Correct. Uh, yeah. And so mm-hmm. other things besides what's in this deal can actually derail these sorts of talks, right? 
Yeah, and you have uh, probably more insight in, on what's going on in the Supreme Court than I do, but there's a firearm decision pending there, which I could see um, changing the political environment on, on this issue. And then you mm. also have the, the abortion uh, decision, which has still uh, not been released. So either of those things, you know, they, the guns was more directly related. Abortion really has nothing to do with this bill, but Congress can get distracted so easily and things could get more partisan on a daily basis. And so there's really, if you really want to get this done, there's no, no sense in letting it just sort of play out. And, you know, I think the other thing, piece of urgency here to keep in mind is that um, there's still this reconciliation discussion happening on the Hill, which is this big party line bill Democrats want to do, and they're just straight up running out of time to do it. So the longer guns takes, if that were to go into July, it could erase that from ever happening. And so I think there's a sense that you got to get the guns deal done to see if there's anything else Democrats can do. They don't have many yeah. days left in the majority before November, if you look at right. the calendar. That's actually one of the things that makes this whole deal particularly interesting, that Republicans are on board with doing it. But uh, mm -hmm. but again, there's another factor, too, that just came up that probably not a lot of people on the Hill have even heard of yet. But apparently uh, yesterday, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is uh, the gun industry's trade group, uh, reported mm -hmm. uh, one, one of their top executives reported that the um, DOD is considering cutting off supply of a certain kind of uh, 556 round that, that's commonly used in AR-15s It's called uh, a green tip. And it's mm -hmm. estimated to be about 30% of the uh, supply out there is, is green tip. And so uh, the Obama administration had tried to do this uh, through rulemaking mm -hmm. a few years back and uh, failed after a huge out, outcry against it. Um, so if the Biden administration is moving forward with some other way of trying to cut off the supply of this ammunition to civilian markets, that could certainly cause uh, enough of a, uh, you know, a sideshow uh, blow up that, that it could underdo, you know, undo this deal, I would think. Yeah, and 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 then the, the question might be for something like that, or even on the more progressive side of things like a, assault weapons ban or things like that. The question is, well, now once it's on the floor, are there going to be amendment votes on these things? Mm -hmm. And my sense right now, you know, unrelated votes, but still within the gun frame, gun category. And mm -hmm. and my sense right now is they don't want to have amendment votes on it. But let's let's say somebody didn't like that rulemaking. Well, you could have an amendment related to it if you wanted to and right. maybe people don't want to take that so even once they get text then there's this like next level of well how, how does this actually go through the senate i mean you can you can say no amendments we're just going to move it through and block everything that's the most efficient way to do it but people may complain and say i actually want the vote on this amendment it could be someone within the group so there's a there's there's multi we're still multi steps away from from this passing the senate and then it has to pass the house so right you're hearing a lot about how the framework's done, and that's the biggest part. I agree with that, honestly. When you have 20 people supporting it publicly, that that's a huge breakthrough, right? But um, still, still kind of a lot of a lot of drama to get through, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about some of the details of, of this that you're hearing about uh, this framework, because you know we got the press release and it gave a, a one yep. sentence explanation for all these things they want to do. Right. Uh, we've had comments from senators you know, over time, but the, some of them are conflicting. And uh, uh, honestly, I want to get your your understanding of uh, what I think might end up being the actual most controversial thing. It hasn't been talked about as much uh, as like the red flag provisions, yeah. but I think the 18 to 20 year old background check process seems to be there from what the trace reported and from even from reading the frameworks, one sentence, it sounds like they're creating a whole new background check process for 18 to 20 year olds that includes what is effectively a mandatory waiting period because it has this like three day period where the FBI gets to, you know, do a more detailed in examination of the juvenile criminal records. Is that yeah. in line with what you're hearing? Yeah. I mean, I think I a hundred percent agree with you that that's, and, and I would even put it a different way. Like, I think it's the most consequential long-term piece piece of this as well, mm -hmm. yeah. in addition to being controversial. But what's weird, right, is like nobody's really complaining about it. Instead, you're hearing a lot of complaints about how, from the Republican side, about how the red flag law, uh, red flag grants would work. You know, Republicans, right. Cornyn, saying, I don't want states that 
refuse to implement red flag laws to not have access to the money that we're going to provide. And Democrats are trying to say, well, the whole point of this is to incentivize red flag laws. So why are we going to just give people money if they don't yeah. implement these? So that's one sticking point we're hearing a lot about. And then the other one is about how do you define a boyfriend or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in a domestic abuser case as it relates to getting barred from buying guns in the background check system. And then... Yeah. Then, then there's this issue, which is just not getting a ton of play, and I I agree yeah. it's a big deal because it's sort of a it's, it doesn't raise the age to buy firearms for these folks, but it does sort of make a, a middle ground in terms of like if you're in this age group, you you have a new background check process that all of a sudden would magically, I, under my understanding, change as soon as you turn 21. Yeah, and, very and that's very odd, but current law is odd too, right? That sure. the day you turn 18, what you did at 17 doesn't matter anymore. It's, you know, sort of yeah. the way it's been talked about on the Hill. And so I, I don't know what the right thing to do is, but it's a big deal, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the most underreported part of this and the most under discussed because what it does, like, effectively is change the background check system. Now, it right. only does it for 18 to 20 year olds, but I think that's if you're making a whole new background check process, I think it's going to be hard to convince gun rights advocates that that isn't going to eventually get expanded to everybody. And so you're kind of slipping in this federal waiting period. Uh, mm-hmm. is what it, I mean, it, it, from what it sounds to me like is, uh, you know, I don't know how much experience you have with the practical side of going through the, the NIC system to buy a gun. But right now, uh, like, you know, it's, it's first of all, it's in the name that it's it, the intention is for this check to be instantaneous. It's the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, right? Right. Uh, now you can have situations already where you get delayed, and that's the three year, three day waiting period, and that's another part of this this deal that that we can discuss a little bit. But but um, so in theory, it do, it's not always instantaneous for everybody. If you have some sort of maybe you have a really common name. Uh, that a criminal also has. And so they have to make sure that you're not that person. Uh, you can get delayed for that reason. Maybe you get, there's something, you have an arrest on your record that could uh, include charges that would make you a prohibited person during that period where you're going through the legal system. You know, there, there's things that already can delay you, but this, it sounds like what they're doing, and it's hard to know exactly without the text, obviously, but it sounds like they're going to just put everyone 18 to 20 into the delayed uh, process automatically. Like it doesn't, yeah. doesn't matter if they pass the check, they're getting into that delayed process until the FBI, I guess, reviews their juvenile criminal records, which is another it, like huge. And it might have to do with, with what state you're in, right? Like, because yeah. there's 50 different state treatments for these juvenile records. And, you know, if a state reacts to this law and makes these things, pop up more quickly maybe the background check and the delay period isn't as long but um there's the question that i've heard is is about functionality how's this going to work with with 50 different states i mean you're really creating a new a new national standard for juvenile criminal and mental records that's what i don't get about it though uh just real quick is like why aren't they just trying to add it's you know i heard tillis's comments uh a while a little you know a few days back where it sounded more like they want to pick a couple of serious offenses, right? I don't know, rape and, and murder and... Uh, abusing animals as well. Abusing animals, as well, sure. As well. yep. Right. Uh, so if you've been convicted of those things as a juvenile, they want to add those records to the background check system. That that makes much more sense to me. Like, why not just ask the states to add those those records instead of defaulting to putting every 18 to 20-year-old into a special new system? background right right i mean and then that's the how how does the and and this will require people far more intelligent than i to assess how the text actually looks but i think me and you we're going to be looking for when there is text sort of an explanation of the functionality what what this actually means on a year from now once this thing's implemented what does it actually mean if you're 18 years old and you want to get buy a gun yeah and i think Part of the reason they're doing this, right, is is the age of some of these mass shooters. And I sure. think, you know, we hear a lot of talk in Washington about actually addressing the problem. I want to do something that actually addresses the problem. And there does seem to be some bipartisan consensus that these folks think this would address the problem. There's like a hunch that 
the Uvalde shooter would not have been able to buy the gun that he bought. You yeah, know? and I you don't know, know that that's actually true. But I don't think that's, that's what true. Reacting to right, and that's the other thing. Like I get it because the shooters were these the you know Buffalo and Uvalde they were eighteen. Although obviously not all mass shooters are under the age of twenty one. So, right. I mean, not the obvious question for gun rights proponents is like, what happens when there's a mass shooting per- perpetrated by somebody who's over 21 years old? Are you just going to expand right. this system to everybody? That's would be the obvious concern. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and th- the other thing too is like this came up, this started coming up and it was never clear to me. I, I don't think there's any evidence that the Uvalde shooter was ever actually convicted for any of these things that he did. Right. That, that right. was the big problem. It's like, mm-hmm. like. He did. He had warning signs like most of them do, but nobody followed up on them. And he wasn't I don't believe he was convicted for his animal abuse or, you know, sentenced any sort of. I mean, I guess we don't know if these records are sealed, maybe. Right. But um, so maybe there's some uncertainty there, though, about about if this would have actually prevented this particular shooter. It doesn't seem like it would have unless unless somebody has information that he had a juvenile criminal record. Right. Which I don't think that's clear at this point. I, I, I just threats. I just don't know, but I know that the motivation here yeah. is because of the age of that particular shooter. Right. It, it, it's how we ended up in the in this instead of eighteen to twenty five or something, it's eighteen mm-hmm. to twenty one. And the thing you're bringing up is the slippery slope argument that you're going to sure. hear from conservatives, which is okay. You do this. This is just a half measure that's on the way to raising the age for firearms or things like that. I think the flip side of that is what you're going to hear from Republicans after this passes, maybe not before, is that they're not going to do anything on this issue for a long time and see Perhaps. how this works. Yeah, I know and, that they're viewing this as like a pressure relief valve sort of situation, right? right? Politically, right? I mean, they want to talk. I mean, look, like this is not something they want to talk about to win the midterm elections. I mean, it's right. much more simple. It's Biden's unpopular. Inflation is bad. That's the whole Republican campaign, and that's what a lot of people in the United States care about right now. And so the, the, the idea from, you know, the McConnell side of uh, Republican leadership is, hey, I feel I feel good about where he thinks he feels good about where they are politically. And doing this doesn't do anything to change that in, in his view. I wonder. I mean, that's right. That's obviously the calculation. I just I wonder how true it is. Like if you if you piss off all the gun rights groups heading into a midterm. I don't, you know, is that good for your turnout? I don't know. It may not be. I mean, I, I guess I we'll think see. There may, and, and then from the Democratic side, similar, right? Like their messaging to their supporters, um, gun control groups, but also, you know, liberal voters and things like that is, is that we're going to come back and get more after this. This mm-hmm. is just the first step. Right. And that's, you know, similarly um, interesting messaging because they may lose control of Congress in just a few months. And they're not going to get more than that. And I don't know how you feel about it, but I think to get the things that Democrats have been talking about for a long time, assault weapons ban, expanded or universal background checks, you probably need to get rid of the legislative filibuster. I think you need more than that because uh, let's, even if you got rid of the filibuster today, I don't think they could pass an assault weapons ban. They haven't passed one through the house. I agree. I mean, part of, part of, getting rid of the filibuster right now would be having more democratic seats, right? Like, so you'd have to have a larger majority and you'd have to have, um, you have to have a significantly it, lot. You know, yeah. Because they, 55 ish seats is probably they, what I would envision. What, what, what did they get to? I think they barely got to 218 in their own party on, uh, magazine bans in that house right. package. Uh, yep. they did, haven't tried to do an assault weapons ban since they took control in 2018. Because yeah. I mean, I think the, brass taxes they don't have the votes for it that's that's right. pretty obvious right so it's not just like the nra money no. that's stopping it's, it right it's structural it's the structure of american politics how the senate is currently constituted and how far a big democratic majority in both chambers is with a democratic president right like those those things could all be very far away and yeah. it's interesting because at the time, um, the pre-impeachment talks about this, I had thought the incentive structures aligned a little bit more from Republicans because you could have Trump pushing them yeah. um, to sign Which on to did. something that was a little out of their comfort zone. He was do- going there, and then obviously it fell apart because impeachment. he got very yeah. angry about impeachment. Right. Um, but it, will there be another Republican president that, that dives into this issue? I, I It seems maybe. helpful to me. But Trump's maybe. been out there attacking this, or at least his spokesperson uh, has been out there attacking the 
the deal so far. So, right. Uh, I don't know. And I think the place you'll see that manifest itself the most is if and when this comes to the house, which where they really listen to what Trump's yeah. saying a lot more, I think you'll get, you know. Yeah, I, the, the Democrats are going to have to pass this on very thin margins if they do it. Right. You know, and it continues the dynamic we've been seeing in the Senate where more Senate Republicans will vote for things than House Republicans, despite the fact there's mm -hmm. four times as many House Republicans as there are Senate Republicans. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, you'll get probably the, what, the four or five that voted for the House package would probably yeah. vote for this. I don't know yeah. how many more you get beyond that, honestly. Yeah, and I would be interested in, in where the Texas, if any of the Texas House members, uh, Republicans, mm -hmm. are, are even considering voting for this, you know? Yeah. Uh, because it's a, the, the big player, I think, here is John Cornyn, the, the senior yep. senator from Texas. And, you know, I'm interesting, interested to see how this affects his own internal politics, both both at home and here in Washington. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, one thing that's been interesting, first of all, we were, John Cornyn was supposed to be on the show this week, but he wasn't able to make it, so he's going to be on next week. So we will be able to talk directly to him about all of this, uh, which will be good. Um, he did do Dana Loesch's show, so it's not as though he's um, avoiding uh, these sorts of interviews, right. I would say, but he just didn't have the time. Uh, it didn't work out, but next week we're supposed to do it. We'll see how it goes. But uh but yeah he'd probably rather do it after the uh the text deal is done right <clears throat> i'm sure yeah i mean i'm sure but he's got it you know the interesting thing about him right is that he he is the one that gives a lot of credibility to this deal because he's been the go-to guy on guns in the senate for republicans for you know a long time and and i think that's probably why they were able to get to 10 off the bat is because he was he joined in on it yeah um yeah. But he's taking, yeah, Corden is taking a lot of uh, personal responsibility for this deal. It's a, a lot of this is hinging on what he says and does. And, and he has already made some comments that indicate the deal might be in trouble. Uh, I don't know. What's your feeling about that? He obviously came out and said uh, that there there's issues with, I think you alluded to this earlier, there's issues with the red flag funding yep. and there's issues with... Um, the boyfriend loop, what exactly constitutes a boyfriend, right? We, we have domestic violence right now means violence against anyone that you're related to, that you cohabit with, uh, you know, in a mm -hmm. romantic relationship, or you have right. a child with, or you're married to, right? Those are right. the four things. They want to expand it to people who you're in a romantic relationship with, but right. you don't live how with. How do you define, how do you, do, and how do you define yeah. that? Yeah. That's, what that's what's challenging now, because Democrats would like that to be a broad definition. Mm-hmm. Cornyn said yesterday, I want that to be pretty narrow. I don't want this to just sweep up everybody that's ever been convicted of these things because it could be many years ago. Right. Um, that's his that's his reasoning here. Um, and, and so, no, I, I don't think this thing's ever been so far uh, in danger of completely falling apart this week. But I think, I mean, what you're seeing is maybe what's frustrated Democrats in the past on other issues is Cornyn's a pretty like tough negotiator. He's not afraid to use the press as a negotiating tactic say this thing's going to fall apart if you don't come to the table you know what i mean so he, he's playing that's an outside game where he's he's making people say like you know focus let's get this done like i'm serious and then i'm not in the room so i don't know but he's got an, a separate inside game where he has a legit relationship with chris murphy um they've worked on the improving the instant background check system a few years yeah, ago he's got a legit he's got a legit relationship with kirsten cinema they've traveled to the border together and have written immigration legislation together um so so i think that's that's the two sides that he's showing and i you know it's not lost on me when i see a, a story in fox news saying here's all the things john cornyn has kept out of this bill right that's the way he's trying to message it publicly yeah. to to conservatives which is to say i'm fighting for you and we ended up with these smaller things. I kept these big things out. You and I know the assault weapons ban, universal background check. These were not in the discussions, but this is the way he's sort of messaging it to um, kind of the right and, and gun owners who care a lot about this issue. Yeah, I wonder if that works. You know, like it's obviously that's what he's that's his message he's trying to put out that they are stopping these other proposals by agreeing to these more limited ones. But I mean, they. The counter to that is that they could just not agree to these to this deal yeah. either. There's no, there's nothing forcing them to do it. Um, so, and and you look at it. One thing that's interesting for him, I think, is, you know, in the early days after Uvalde, uh, we wrote at the at the Reload a piece about you know what could what what's on the table, what could happen, and you look at like Florida after Parkland, and they passed 
you know, red flag bill. They pay, they rose, they raised the age to buy, um, you know, AR-15s and other other uh, similar firearms to 21. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, so you in theory you could see something like that happen in Texas because they're politically similar states. Um, yep. Texas, I mean, Texas is kind of trending a little more blue. Not maybe not as much as a lot of people in media like to think it is, but yeah. But uh, and then Florida is trending more red. Uh, over time, I think everyone acknowledges that, yeah. and so they're somewhere close to each other. They're very large states, uh, yeah. you know. And uh, but instead, what we've seen is, uh, you know, Abbott has talked about upping enforcement uh, with the laws that they passed recently. They had a lie and try uh, bill. He came out and he sent a letter saying, you know, we should we should do more to enforce our current laws yeah. um, instead of pushing for any sort of red flag or. Uh, you know, uh, or the boyfriend loophole stuff that's in this federal deal that Corning is back. And so it's pretty different approaches, it seems like. Yeah. And I mean, I, I know Rick Scott pretty well as a senator. Um, and, you know, I covered his his Senate race in 2018. And he was in this unique position, right, where he's the governor running for senator. So he signs signs the bill that you just talked about. And that's not something, you know, he wants to see on a federal level. So in some ways, the political incentives for him were different than they would be for Greg Abbott, you know, in in Texas. Um, and by the same token, like, what are Cornyn's incentives? This is a guy who talks openly about wanting to be the Republican leader right. at some point. Does this help him or hurt them? him in that yeah. quest? I think it depends on how many votes he gets from Republicans. He told me yesterday he wants 70 plus. So I mean, 20 Republicans vote for him. That seems like a high bar. If he could meet it, I think it helps him, right? Yeah, if he but, can, but I mean... But if he gets 11, that that may not help him. Yeah, that's But he was problem. also just reelected. He was just reelected. And in my view, on a lot of issues, he's sort of a media and Republicans. So when he's involved in negotiations, it feels like there's a chance you get 60 votes when you have a narrowly divided Senate like we have now. Um, so that's why he's been involved in immigration negotiations. That's why he's been involved in criminal justice reform negotiations. You know, it's like sometimes Susan Collins or Lindsey Graham will be involved in negotiations and they're important deal makers too, but do they bring along a large chunk of the conference? And sometimes mm-hmm. the answer is no. With Cornyn, the answer has proven to be yes so far. And by large chunk, 10. 10 is significant. That's the most important number. Republicans in the Senate will care if it's a lot more than 10, and reporters like me will care a lot more, but probably Americans are just going to be paying attention to whether it passes or not. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's interesting to think about as far as the political implications for Cornyn himself, because uh, I mean, you know, obviously, he's, I don't think he's going to challenge McConnell, but McConnell's quite, he's getting up there in age, so he's mm-hmm. not going to be around forever. And uh, there's what the three Johns, right, that are supposed supposed to be the ones who want that role down the line. And, yeah. um, it, you know, on the one hand, you're right, like, it's impressive coming out of the gate with this framework that he got 10 Republicans at all involved. Yeah. And, I, and I don't think that would happen without John Cornyn being, uh, you know, signed on to it. Um and, you know, especially since Cornyn's, especially since McConnell's not even one of those votes yet. Right. Um, and uh, but at the same time, he said he wants a he wants the majority of the caucus. And I don't see how they could get that, uh, given what the details are, this that are coming out about this bill. Right. And uh, he, like to me, I, I think 13 to 15 is the high end. Right. Well, that's partially why he's talking about those two issues you were just talking about, red flags and domestic violence um and the boyfriend loophole and mm-hmm. i think that i think those like things will probably determine in part you know d- 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 republicans feel like they got the better end of that deal well hey maybe they get four or five more votes because of it do they feel like democrats rolled them right at the end well maybe you're right they get 13 votes and you know it's still a big deal but maybe a little bit of a disappointment in terms of how badly it splits the republican conference yeah i, I mean i guess it's uh, one thing I do wonder too is is about uh, the Democratic side. Like, how much could they push before that falls apart on them? Uh, I think yeah. right now that you know they can look at it from the, the Democratic side and think, well, yeah, we're not getting what we really want, sure, but we're not really giving up anything, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, um, right. Because no, there's no pro gun provision in this in this framework at all. Uh, I mean, even Manchin Toomey had some pro gun sweeteners that they threw in there. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty that in that sense, it's fairly remarkable. But I do wonder, like, OK, if if they change the red flag uh, 
grant program to be just a grant program for any sort of crisis intervention uh, law, uh, you know, how far can you push that until the liberals in the Senate start to say, what's the point of this deal? Right, right. And, you know, I my understanding is that Democrats saying we'll basically take everything in public, anything in public is a little bit different than the way they're acting mm-hmm. um, in in these negotiations. Like one thing that they had legit been pushing for that was not in the framework was a mandatory waiting period, which, you know, I don't know how realistic that ever was. Um, but that was something that was actually discussed, you know, behind closed doors. And so when that when that was out, I think Democrats felt like they were giving Republicans, you know, something because I think they had been drawing a little bit of a hard line on that, um, in these private negotiations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, it's interesting. And, and you've already had AOC come out and talk about actually that she's the only one who's brought up complaints about the background check system for this process that they're creating for 18 to 20 year olds. Yeah. But on the, uh, the other side of it, the sort of criminalization of schools side or, uh, you know, the privacy aspect of opening yep. up, uh, cases that were supposed to have been expunged or records that were supposed to be expunged. Um, you know, I also think that sort of, there's a critique there that it's a weird half measure to only look at juvenile records for people who are 18 to 20. I mean, why, like, so once they turn 21, the fact that they had a disqualifying juvenile record doesn't matter right. anymore. No, no it's longer kind of matters. Weird. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and I think something else you'll probably hear from Democrats is we don't really like the school security stuff. Yeah. Like, um, but we're going to vote for it anyway. And I don't know how true that is versus like saying like we didn't get everything. Like that's an important part of these compromises too, is highlighting what you didn't get to, to, right. to, to say, you know, like I'm with you, I'm with you guys that wanted more, but I have to take what's in front of me. Yeah. I mean, I, that's the thing about Republican side of this is like, what are they going to do? All they can really point to is what wasn't in the bill. Uh, on the, you know, on the more restrictive end to say, here's what we got. We, we didn't pass some more, more, that's what Cornyn's argument is. So yeah. And I wouldn't, I honestly would, I would not rule out the something in that framework falling out. You know, Mm. I wouldn't rule that out. I I think that's a possibility. What do you think would fall out? The, the, the thing about the boyfriend loophole is that that's been discussed before as part of the Violence Against Women Act. Right. Um, and, and they had to pull it because of the difficulty of reaching this definition of what a romantic partner, you know, is. And so I'm not predicting that's going to fall out. But that's the that's the thing that surprised people the most on Sunday when this thing came out uh, was the, the inclusion of this, because I felt like they thought we tried. We couldn't do it. This is sort of like off the table. And cinema has been very insistent that this is the place to do this. Hmm. And. Um, that's sort of why, you know, Cornyn and Tillis have, have been, um, entertaining it. It's very strange to me that the, because the boy, you know, expanding domestic violence, like, yes, I understand that obviously that can get into thorny territory as to what the heck a romantic partner means under federal Mm -hmm. statute. Of course, that, that will be difficult, but, um, I mean, it also seems like a less controversial thing than creating an entirely new background check process that has a de facto waiting period in it. Um, You know what I mean? So it's, it's uh, just odd to me that that's uh, the, the, that's where Cornyn is focusing his, uh, his his, uh, critiques and energy right now. But uh, I mean, I, you know, I guess one of the big problems is there's no text, so it's hard to know exactly all we have are these reports and what senators have said. And so, mm-hmm. uh, but that's why it's important to bring on somebody like you who can give us uh, much more insight into it. And so I'm really glad that you're able to join us. Um, sure. can you tell people where they can find more of your reporting. Yep. Politico.com. I try to have a good story up there almost every day. And you can follow me on Twitter at Burgess EV. Um, last, my last name is Everett. Um, so thanks for having me on, Stephen. It's great to be here. Absolutely. We appreciate it. All right. We have another one of my favorite segments, the member segment. This week, we have Mary Catherine Hand, who is a Reload member uh, that many of you probably already know, uh, but she's agreed to come on and give us a little bit uh, of her backstory uh, and how how she came to be a Reload member and and her relationship with guns. So, Mary, welcome. Welcome to the show. Can you just tell us people a little bit? about yourself? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, big fan of the reload and all the work that you guys do. So much appreciated. Um, thank you. Well, I am a uh, CNN commentator and author, uh, I guess a free speech enthusiast. I've sometimes uh, done the 
the hard, hard work of teaching about free speech on college campuses, uh, even elite college campuses. Uh, so that's only my, getting harder. Yeah, work. that's my that passion. Um, but I do a lot of, uh, if, if you can tell by those two job descriptions, a lot of talking to people who don't agree with me. Like that's my, that's my gig. That's what I do. Um, and I enjoy it cause I like to go, uh, across lines and I like to make those connections and I like to, uh, sometimes even, you know, if it's the view or wherever, go into a room of people primed to dislike me and prove that they're not going to by the end. <laughs> <laughs> That's my, my favorite kind of challenge. Um, because I think it's good for the country for people to be able to speak in those ways. And, uh, and so I attempt to do it pretty regularly. I, um, I am from North Carolina. I was actually born in Alabama, grew up in North Carolina, went to the University of Georgia. So very, very Southern. <laughs> very Southern, yes. <laughs> but part of my, uh, the reason I became who I am is because I grew up in a liberal college town uh, in Durham, North Carolina. So uh, everyone thought the same things in my town. And I was always interested in why and whether we should test those ideas. And that was just sort of naturally who I was as a person and, and what my family was about. My family was certainly a little bit right of center con compared to, or maybe, maybe centrist compared to the rest of the city. Um, but we were not a political family. I just, I just felt the need to question the beliefs of all of the people around me and because they conformed so often. Uh, and so that led me to different conclusions, which is why I'm sort of a libertarian leaning conservative mm. today. Yeah. yeah. Then, uh, so did guns play a role in that as well? So I would say, cause I grew up in the South, they were always sort of in the picture. Uh, mm -hmm. it wasn't, uh, an oddity. Uh, but when I, my, in my actual household, we didn't own guns. My father grew up in Georgia and, uh, my mom in rural Virginia. So both of them had as kids, um, but in their houses growing up, but we didn't in my house. And I know my, my dad was former military and quite a marksman. Um, and he took, uh, great pride in it. And he had his patch from, uh, from his air force days. And, uh, and so we had heard about that. And I think the, the main, probably the main place I was, uh, first exposed as a kid was, um, my aunts and uncles in rural Virginia were hunters mm. and they would once in a while have all of us out to the hunting cabin. Uh, and everybody would bring back what they had, uh, killed and, and, and we'd have, you know, a nice feast over there. Um, and they would also do target shooting out on that, that farmland. And so my dad right. would show us uh, what that was like. So that was like sort of my first exposure as a kid. And uh, and you still uh, do you still shoot today? Are you still have you gotten into hunting at all? Or are you so I've never you, uh, I've never hunted actually. Like uh, but I like I like target shooting. I like uh, skeet mm. shooting. I don't do yeah. it very often if I'm if I'm honest. Um, and sure. my husband is quite skilled in many things firearms, and I should uh, take advantage of his expertise. But sometimes being coached by your husband is not like the ideal <laughs> dynamic. <laughs> yes, you should. You know, what you should check out is uh, like a girl and a gun. They've got uh, women's shooting leagues. That, yes, that I talk can. about that because kind I, of thing. I I've been thinking that I should do it more often because I am a I'm a naturally decent shot. Uh, mm. But and I was always sort of a surprise myself. Uh, the last last event I did, I think, was um, it was some gathering of conservatives and 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 leaders and whatnot. Uh, former speaker Ryan was out there and they were all doing uh, skeet shooting and I actually performed quite well. And I was like, that's, that's good. You know, cause you don't want to go out there in front of all these people and be terrible at it. Um, but I should do it more often because I enjoy it and I would get better at it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, one thing that's interesting, right. Is, is the, uh, the way that the media often portrays firearms and, right. and you're somebody whose family owns firearms, whose husband, uh, is adept with with guns, um, and I think that's probably fairly rare on a lot of these shows that you go on, yeah, uh, on CNN or The View, uh, you know, and, and a number of other outlets that you've discussed. What what's it been like for you um, in in these sort of atmospheres and major media outlets? You know, they they bring you on, but you're somebody who comes from a pretty different cultural background on a lot of things, right? Uh, but guns is one of them, right? Yeah, I think I'm. Uh, often in a position of, and I enjoyed, I think it was, it was the reload piece, uh, this week that was, uh, guns are normal and normal people use guns. <laughs> it's yeah, like, David Yamani, not, only, I love that guy. not only is it normal, but the, um, coalition of people who own guns is getting bigger and my, more diverse by the day, um, mm -hmm. particularly over the last two years. And so I find myself often 
in places where there's a lot of ideological agreement outside of me, (laughs) explaining that things are actually quite normal to plenty of Americans that they think are very exotic. Um, and so, I mean, a great example is I was, I was on the view and had to like, at one point just reset because we were talking about the national anthem and the flag. And I was like, I just want to, I just want to just give us a baseline that like most Americans really like the anthem and the flag. Like it's not a, it's not controversial to them. Uh, So that kind of thing. And I think guns are a similar uh, subject where they don't know a lot of people who have used them, who uh, are, you know, or maybe they do know people and those people don't talk about them because they're not gun fetishists. Like they assume all of them are (laughs) right. And so they just haven't been exposed to this as a normal part of life. And so I find a couple things. One, that most folks who speak about gun control in media and their desire for it, they sort of like blank out the fact that there is any gun control that currently exists. Like right, it's all, yes. it, it, it is always a baseline of zero to them. Like, well, we just need to have sensible regulations that the amendment says you can regulate. I'm like, we have lots of regulations, guys. We have many regulations, um, differs by state, federal versus state. There's lots of them, lots of them out there. Uh, so let's start from a real understanding of what the baseline is and what the regulations are before we start talking about what you want to add on top. And I think an illustration of this is that in the proposed sort of framework for some of the, uh, the laws that they're talking about and that might get through the Senate. Mm-hmm. One of them, I believe the crackdown on, on firearms, licensed firearms dealers is basically already part of the law and they're sort of restating it. Um, yeah. you have a, a more nuanced understanding of this, but this is one of, I do, I, th- I do think people fall into this trap of being like, well, God, we got to take care of this. And it's like, well, that's actually something we've done. Right. Yeah. There, there is a segment, it passed the house bill and it's, uh, it's now part of the Senate framework that talks about, you know, straw purchases and gun trafficking. Right. And as far as I can tell, all it does is just add another statute that does the same thing that's already in current law. I mean, you already cannot. Uh, buy a gun for another person right. uh, on, outside of, you know, gifts to family members, outside of a bona fide gift to a family member. So, uh, you know, I don't know why they're deciding to make it double illegal to do that, but it doesn't seem to add any additional penalties or change yeah. how the law is already currently enforced. I mean, in fact, DOJ just announced, uh, the Attorney General just announced a big prosecution about somebody who uh, made a bunch of, uh, who, who was selling guns without a license when right. he should have had a license. Uh, is, that's another aspect of the bill, yeah. but it's the, it's the yeah, I mean, that, that's the kind of stuff. Yeah. It's the double secret probation of, of gun law. Right. Um, and, and yeah, you know what, that also reminds me too, your point there uh, about AR-15s, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's one hanging on the wall behind me here, but, but like, these are the most popular rifle in right. the country. Right. <laughs> They're very popular. And often you'll get people in media talk about them as though they're these bizarre, you know, yeah. things that normal people would never need or, or want. And it's like, well, the problem is a lot of normal people do yes. already own them. Yes. They're and, all and you're them. just sort of, yeah, you're just sort of like casting aside that whole population of 20 million. You know, there's 20 million of them. I don't know, I don't know that there are 20 million people own them. Right. But you get the idea. There's a lot of people who own these. Yeah. I think, yeah, there's a, there's a sort of, uh, projection of this exotic nature onto all guns and all gun owners. Yeah. Uh, and it's just not the case. And like I said, the numbers are going up and, and the diverse, diversity of gun owners going up, uh, you know, really in huge ways, um, even in just, just the recent past, if you take time to understand any of that. The other thing I run into a lot is arguments about, okay, well, and I, I don't mean to discount every argument for gun control immediately, but they all do seem to they seem to rely on this idea that like, we just need less of these guns. And I'm like, okay, well, first let's, first let's start with the fact that there's a lot of them. There's more than there are Americans. Okay. So we have a lot. We also have the second amendment, which means you can't just ungun people. That's not a thing that you can do. Um, and then you get down the road to like, well, well, we could just be like Australia. And it's like, okay, well now you're talking about banning and confiscation, which is a whole other um, barrel of monkeys, uh, so to speak. So I think a lot of people are not because they don't understand the situation and the actual gun culture. They talk about this sort of parody of gun culture because they don't understand what's actually out there. They end up proposing things that 
cannot be done constitutionally, um, that would not work just logistically in this country, even if they would work constitutionally. Um, and you end up, I think, having a pretty dishonest conversation because uh, sometimes if you lead people down the road, they'll just say, well, yeah, I, w- I just want to get rid of semi-automatic long guns. And I, this has actually happened on air before with somebody with where I just asked. They said, yeah, just semi-automatic long guns. And I was like, well, that's interesting because most crime is committed with handguns. So what would you do about handguns? Well, we should get rid of the semi-automatic handguns too. Right. <laughs> like, well, you, what you don't understand that that's basically just all the guns. Like you just said all yeah. the guns. Uh, but that same person will say in the same segment, look, I grew up in a place that had guns. I understand guns. I don't want to get rid of them. It's like, well, d- do you not? Because you kind of yeah. do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There is a lot of that. It's just like total lack of basic knowledge about guns, uh, how they function, how the laws currently work, why people own them. You get all all of these things. They're yeah. just constant straw man arguments that, that are based on uh, ignorance. Like they just don't understand or know anything about gun owners or guns. And, and so, yeah, they'll, they'll think they're p- putting forward some sort of uh, moderate position or they'll act right. like they are. And right. really they're talking about banning, confiscating all the <laughs> yeah. guns. In like the it's not actually <laughs> moderate. Um, one of the things I like too, there is a move and it. It's less frequent than just not knowing about guns, but there is a move also where if you say like, Hey, you should know more about this before you talk about banning it. They're like, no, no, no. I'm very proud that I don't know anything about guns. Okay. That is what makes me pure enough to have the discussion. And you are dirtied up by your knowledge of the thing you're trying, we're trying to ban. So you, you stay out of this. Um, And I think, look, there can be a tendency to get very pedantic about gun knowledge in some cases, right. And to exclude people from the conversation that way, but basic knowledge would be good. Like semi-automatic versus automatic should be sort of like something you're shooting for, (laughs) so to speak, uh, before you go on air to speak about this. And sometimes there's just like pride in the ignorance and that's not, that's not serving anybody. And it's a huge problem. And I agree, right. You know, look, I understand what some people are getting at. Like, yeah. Uh, just because somebody misidentifies something technical about a firearm when they're talking about it doesn't mean that their views are totally uh, forfeit and you don't need to think about them or, or have policy discussions or whatever. Right. That's fair enough. But, you know, if you, especially if you're a reporter, if you're a journalist and you're trying to inform your audience, you should have a base level understanding of what you're talking about. That That's really what I It seems like a simple for. idea. <laughs> it really is a simple idea, right? I mean, it's not, it's, and this, uh, you know, Stelter had me on a show and I was up against uh, Mother Jones, editor in chief, and right. and she was saying like, you know, and, and that's the point I was trying to make. And she was, you know, recasting it as like, oh, if you don't understand that AR means uh, armor light rifle, then you can't talk about guns. It's like, no, that's not what I mean. If, yeah. if you don't understand what semi-automatic and fully automatic are, right. then you should at least learn that Just very basic up. piece of information. It's not yes. complicated. I know that there are aspects of gun policy and guns that are complicated. And yeah, perhaps consult with experts before you write about those things too. But at the base level, you should have just, it's kind of like if you became a sports journalist, right? Right. If you started reporting on basketball and you'd never even watched a game of basketball (laughs) on TV or dribbled a basketball, it's gonna be very difficult for you to properly explain the topic to your audience. I grew up in a state where they play basketball. I knew people who played basketball. Right. I've never actually right. seen the game. <laughs> yeah, I've never shot a basketball. No, it's a, either, and but... it is to some extent. And this is something that that bothers me about journalism in general is that there is this tendency in modern journalism to demand emotionalism almost mm. above all else. Right. So if you are soberly like sort of bringing the room back to like, OK, well, let's talk about what this proposed legislation would do and let's talk about the nature of the guns that it would affect and the people that it would affect, um, that doesn't show proper respect for those who have been uh, hurt by gun violence because you're not emoting in that moment. But frankly, journalism's job should be to get beyond that pretty frequently and to not stay in that emotional moment, even though there's power in that and there's good reason for that, right? When we have terrible things happen, it is our job to be adults 
and adult thinkers. And this happened on COVID too. It's not just gun violence. It's, you know, it's our rational risk analysis and, and approaching things with a sober mind and trying to figure out the costs and benefits is what we should be doing. And, and too often that does not feel like what the job is. The, the job often is just to feel and then to talk about yeah. it. And honestly, this is why I'm always very hesitant to go on uh, national media in the wake of one of these horrible shootings, because I am always concerned that even if I'm there to talk about policy, that's what they're having me on to do. I There's always a risk that you get cast as the token pro-gun person who is the avatar for uh, everyone's anger at what had happened. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, I'm sure you probably have experienced that being booked that way. Well, and I'm, uh, I'm heartened that I have, career, but I have been heartened that hard. I've seen you um, on national media, including CNN. Um, and you, and you have not been booked in that, in that particular yeah. role. And they've, they've let you um, do the thing that you're good at, which is to explain this uh, in a, in a calm way to people who don't always grasp all of it because they haven't been exposed to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was a risk to do, uh, you know, it was a risk to do those shows, but I, I, luckily with CNN and the shows that I did, I had pre-existing relationships right. with like Jake Tapper and, and even Brian Stelter to, to some degree to where I could at least have some trust that they yeah. weren't going to try and, you know, sandbag me in that way. Like, oh yeah, we're having you on as a reporter and analyst, but then really we're going to try and ask you why, you know, why are these guns yeah. so bad? Well, and Jake really and does want to understand yeah. this stuff. Um, and so that's example. why I was comfortable doing it, but it's a risk. It is a risk. And you, you, uh, you know, I, I know you've been booked to play that role, not necessarily on CNN, but like, uh, you've had interviews in the past where right. that's how you get set up on and, any number of issues. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm, right. Not just guns, but all kinds of things. Yeah. And yep. so it, it's, it's difficult, but, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, so why, why, uh, I guess give us the, a lot of people say, just don't even do these shows. Why even go on, uh, on so CNN? I, or, I think it, you? look, I think it takes practice and I think it's, it can be challenging, but I think, um, and I think you're quite good. You are quite good at, uh, sort of bringing the temperature down and saying, okay, let's go back to the the thing that we're talking about. Um, look, I think it matters to have people who are good at talking about these things in front of people who aren't used to hearing them. And sometimes that's like a hardship duty and it's not the easiest thing in the world. Um, but I also, I also have been on plenty of shows where everyone agrees with me. And although that's fun, uh, I enjoy the challenge of trying to make the argument to someone who's determined to disagree with my argument. Right. And then in addition to that, I also at CNN, particularly on Jake's show, get a lot of honest back and forth, like, just like, okay, I'm looking at you. Like, I think you're a little crazy right now, but I'm not going to attack you for it. Right. (laughs) That's kind of the vibe. Um, and we can, I can work with that. And I think it's worthwhile, uh, to have that out in the universe, uh, and to try to do that. And it trains me well, for going and speaking to college campuses where like the ideological conformity is even more intense than other places. Um, mm. so I enjoy that opportunity and I think it's, it, it depends on the day, but it, it feels worth it to me to try to get that message out to people who don't usually hear it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree. Uh, and I think it's important also for, for people who do agree with you to understand why you want to do these, yeah. these sorts of shows and, and the benefit of it. It's okay. Think it's, people think, think I'm crazy. Real. My coworkers think I'm crazy. The people who agree with me think I'm crazy. It's fine. It's like, it's my, that's where, that's where I'm comfortable. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, I, we should probably have you back on and do a, a full, a full podcast at some point when you have some more time, but, yeah. but I know you got to go, where can people uh, read more uh, of your writing or, or hear you, uh, you have a podcast yes, right, with I one do. of my former so I'm, editors. Uh, I will tell my, my social medias, MK Hammer on Substack and Twitter and MK Hammer Time on uh, on Instagram. And then uh, my friend Vic Mattis and I, your former, I believe your former editor. It's That's right. Uh, we have a Great podcast guy. called Getting Hammered because all of my, all of my social medias, all my products are branded <laughs> with that. <laughs> so Getting Hammered is on uh, Apple and all the, all the places you get podcasts. Uh, and it's sort of like a morning show feeling, a little newsy, but not too heavy. So I think you'll enjoy it. Can I tell it. you a secret? Um, that's going to also be broadcast on the show. To everyone. <laughs> yes. uh, I don't listen to many podcasts, but I listen to your guys' podcast. Oh, thank that, you. Like I actually very much enjoy the podcast and not only the episodes where I am explicitly mentioned, although I yeah. do, that is a good way to get me to listen to a podcast. <laughs> we try to shout but, people so. out, you know, 
<laughs> so keep that up. But but yeah, I it's great. You guys have great chemistry. Thank you. Uh, honestly, uh, you know, and you both have such great personalities that I think it makes the show uh, really good. In addition to you know being two smart people who have really good analysis. Thank you. Well, we appreciate it. Events. We we try to do the news without being a bummer. That's basic. That's the that's the watchword for that show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Um, and, and last question before you go, mm -hmm. what what made you decide to become a, a Relo member? Because I, actually, I'm also a, uh, a subscriber to your uh, Substack too. Thank so you, thank you. Which you know, I should out. do much more consistent work on, like you do on Reload. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, no, I joined because uh, I I like the work you do, and I think it's important to uh, support people who do well informed work and who are putting forth effort to do real journalism. Um, because look, I, it's, and I work in sort of the generalist opinion space, but I think, um, I think reporting even from a point of view, uh, is hard work and you gotta, you gotta put forth resources to do it. Um, and it's really valuable. Uh, and I like to add as much reporting to my columns as I can. Um, and it can be really tough to fit that in, uh, and to make it sustainable. So I want to contribute to that and to make sure that, uh, that, uh, the journalists around me are better informed uh, so, because you are out there doing this work. Wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for, for coming on the show. Sure. And we'll have to have you on again soon. Thank you very much. Okay. It's that time in the episode where we speak with contributing writer Jake Fogelman. How are you doing, Jake? I'm doing well, Steve. How are you? I'm doing all right. How's your, how's your week been going? Uh, it's been... Can't complain too bad. It's really hot in Colorado this week and close to 100 every single day. So that's been fun. It's not so bad in Virginia this week, actually. So that's I'm thankful for that, because usually yeah. here it's just muggy all the time. I was going to say, you guys uh, have the humidity to deal with. So, <laughs> yeah, it's rough, but uh, it's been OK this week. Thankfully, we spent some time outside in Old Town Alexandria. It's been nice, but um, I'm sure we'll get just 100 percent humidity from here on out for the rest of the summer. <laughs> But uh, at least we got one decent week. <laughs> anyway, uh, so the news update this week, we've got um, a story out of Texas that you did, right? The Texas governor, Greg Abbott, he's reacting to the Valde shooting uh, with some actual, you know, I guess, policy uh, that he wants to see implemented or, or I guess uh, he wants to, to see it more aggressively uh uh, pursued by by prosecutors in the state. Is that right? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it? You wrote a story. Yeah, that's right. So uh, Tuesday this week, he sent out a letter to the Texas District and County Attorneys Association, um, which, as the name suggests, just represents the various prosecutors across the state. Um, and he essentially was just uh, encouraging them to use uh, their new lie and try law. Um, they passed a bill last year in their legislative session that makes it a state felony for someone to lie on a background check form in order to obtain a gun illegally. Um, so basically, he was just suggesting to them, hey, we have this lie and try law. I want you to aggressively pursue these, train your prosecutors to, you know, to look out for these signs and then actually actively prosecute them. Um, and he was suggesting that was a way to try to crack down on shootings like what happened in Uvalde. Um, and, and so that's interesting for a couple of reasons, right? But one of them, is uh, what, what, so why why would the state pass their own version of this law, right? It's already federal law, right? To, right. That it's a federal felony to lie on the background check form. So why did it, why did they pass this law? Why does Abbott think it's important? Yeah. So as you said, it is already a federal crime, um, and it happens several hundred times a year, if not thousands of times a year, where folks do lie on background checks. Um, but the, where Texas decided to make it their own. Uh, crime is the fact that the federal government pretty rarely prosecutes those violations. Um, you see this, this is a common critique. If you're a gun rights advocate, you're probably familiar with this is the fact that we don't really enforce these laws on, on the books. And it's sort of one of those instances where, yeah, the background check system maybe will flag someone that lied, but they really won't be followed up. Like ATF won't follow up with them or it'll get referred to local prose federal prosecutors in whatever district right. the uh, offense occurred in and it just charges won't be filed or, you know, so it, it's very rare to actually see that get prosecuted. So Texas said, you know, if it happens in our state, we'll follow up and treat it as a state issue instead of relying on federal prosecution. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's fairly common that you, you'll have uh, these state statutes that are similar in nature to federal statutes, just so that right. you can have two different jurisdictions go after the problem. Right. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, when it comes to at least when it comes to background check 
denials, you'll have like a hundred thousand of those a year. And then, uh, some of those really only a small percentage actually get referred to DOJ for prosecution. And then even among those, only a small percentage actually get prosecuted. And then right. beyond that, even only really a very small number get convictions or plea deals right. out of the prosecution. So it is, uh, it's one of these issues that's commonly talked about in the gun world as, uh, you know, something that is, uh, needs to be fixed. I guess you, you hear this a lot. And so it's, it, you know, Texas took that step to make it a state law, a state crime. And now I guess Abbott is, I mean, he's really just saying like, please use this law. Um, right. I, I guess, uh, the other interesting aspect of this is, well, one, like this wouldn't have had anything to do with Uvalde. It wouldn't have stopped right. the shooter in Uvalde. So okay. just to be clear on that, because, uh, he wasn't a prohibited person. He didn't. He didn't lie on a background check to get his guns, uh, as far as we know. And um, so it wouldn't have had any impact on his particular situation. I guess this is one of those things where it's a solution for other potential uh, shootings or to prevent shootings going forward. But but uh, the other interesting aspect of it is this seems to be more of the the response to Uvalde inside of Texas. Right. Uh, you're not seeing the governor push for new gun restrictions or even something like a red flag law. Right. Uh, instead, he's he's pointing to stricter enforcement of current laws, right? Right. No, that's exactly right. I, th I thought you made an interesting point on Twitter the other day when you contrasted this experience to Florida's after Parkland. Because uh, you see they're similar, not the same, but similar political dynamics, both trifecta red states. Uh, Florida is getting even more red. Um, and the fact that, in, you know, after Parkland happened, they were willing to go ahead and pass a, a couple gun control bills. They raised the age of purchase for rifles, for semi-automatic rifles mm -hmm. to 21. They passed a red flag law. Um, so we wondered maybe would Texas potentially dip their toe in the water and consider something like that? And I think this is this kind of makes it clear that they're going to go down the route of, hey, we already have laws on the books. Make sure you just enforce them better. And that's the right. way we're going to try to tackle this issue. So I think that's an interesting thing to see, especially because it's an election year and it's one of the biggest red states in the country to see how they're going to handle these types of shootings. Yeah, I talked a little bit about that with with Burgess on the the, in the main interview, but I, I think that's the biggest takeaway from this story is like the, this is what the response is from Texas Republicans. And it's interesting to see John Cornyn, one of the senators from Texas, who's Republican. Yeah. Uh, pushing a different, um, out, you know, a, a different strategy at the federal level, which is to do this this framework, this this gun deal uh, that does include some uh, restrictions, or at least on, um, you know, expanding what domestic violence entails to to uh, fit boyfriends, you know, abuse by boyfriends in, into that definition, and then uh, you know this new background check process that. That they're looking at. So it's it's interesting to see the divergence there from the state officials and the federal officials out of Texas, even the ones in the same party. Um, and so I think that's why this story is particularly uh, particularly useful to to understand. Right. So and it's also interesting because it is an election year. Uh, obviously, he's yeah. up for his governor seat this November, um, and his challenger is is one of the leading proponents of new gun control. Right. Um, to see how this might affect the political dynamic. Um, obviously, Beto O'Rourke's been outspoken. He crashed that press conference Abbott was giving in the aftermath of Uvalde. He's since doubled down again about confiscating AR-15s. Um, and there's been some polling to come out to show that there's a plurality in Texas that actually want new gun control laws as a response of Uvalde, but it doesn't seem to be hindering Abbott's lead in the polls. And in fact, Abbott's lead appears to be widening because there's a new poll out this week that shows him with a, a 19 point lead over O'Rourke, which is actually an increase in his lead. Um, so right. I, I think that's a fascinating thing to point out that the political dynamics Absolutely. don't necessarily work out the way you might expect. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's, uh, it's fascinating to watch the diverging strategies there and see their their political impact, which we're going to see much more immediately in the Texas gubernatorial election than we will right. in, you know, like the how these Republicans who vote for this framework fare, because Cornyn's not up for election for a while. Right. And um, some I mean, of the 10 Republicans signed on four of them are retiring. 
Right. And and another couple aren't, you know, the rest aren't up for election anytime soon. So, uh, you know, that's interesting political dynamics there. It seems like, I don't know, Republicans at the federal level maybe view this as, you know, as I said earlier, as a, on the other, during the other interview, a, a pressure relief valve, but it's like, uh, how are the politics actually playing out? I think you'll, you'll see it more clearly in the Texas gubernatorial election, because that's coming up now. And Abbott is taking a different tact than the, than the Senate Republicans are on how to respond to the shooting. And he's going with enforce our current laws more strictly, and they're going with make some, uh, some gun, you know, reforms, some changes to federal gun law, uh, to make it a little more restrictive. And we'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that plays. I mean, so far, like you said, it seems Abbott's strategy is not hurting him politically. Uh, and Beto, I mean, cause you got that very clear contrast. I mean, Beto's on the right. very far left of this issue and Abbott's, uh, in the traditional Republican, uh, right side of the issue where he's saying, don't pass new gun laws, instead enforce the current gun laws that we have. So how that plays at the polls in Texas should tell us something significant because, you know, Texas is still very much a red state, but it is trending bluer. Right. Um, I don't think, uh, so, you know, it, it could give us a decent barometer of where, where these strategies are headed. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see as the action draw, election draws nearer, you know, if that changes at all. But it is, yeah. Yeah. But that's all we got for this week. Um, we had a final item of members uh, interview. We had another top Hill reporter on. So, you know, pretty good streak. This is a good episode, I think. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, hopefully we can bring another good one next week. Hopefully John Cornyn is able to make it uh, on that episode. I think I look forward to talking to somebody who's actually doing the negotiations and get his his point of view uh, directly. So um, hopefully that'll come together. If not, we'll find another interesting guest to have on uh, in his place. But uh, yeah, thank you guys for listening. If you want to join the Reload today, just head on over to thereload.com and buy a membership. We've got monthly and yearly memberships. The yearly one is, uh, you know, you're effectively getting two months for free. So that's not a bad deal, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you'll get access to hundreds of exclusive stories that you can't find anywhere else. Lots of analysis pieces to give you more insight into what's really going on uh, with guns in, in D.C., in the in that Capitol building. And um, you also get this podcast a day early and you can be the next, perhaps, member segment. So uh, that's it for this week. And we will see you guys next week.